The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Each week we want to look at a different line here. And um, here as we start, we want to lay a foundation. In fact, that's the definition of, or the, the description and the title of my message today, if you're taking notes. Declaration, foundation. Declaration, foundation. There is a foundational declaration that David makes here by saying, the Lord is my shepherd, that leads to the rest of this chapter. Uh, this entire psalm is built on this foundation. You won't be able to lay down on green pastures, be led beside still waters, walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil if the Lord is not your shepherd. This is the foundational declaration that David makes, and this is actually how Hebrew poetry works. Uh, we talked last week a little bit about uh, also not just the, um, the gap between us and a shepherding culture, but there's also not too many of us who haven't spent much time lately at you know, a poetry slam. That's kind of a foreign thing to us, where we snap our fingers and we drink lattes. That's a bit foreign to us. Well, Hebrew poetry is different than the poetry we tend to think of. It, it works a lot like well, what we see here in Psalm 23, it's usually not so much rhyme and rhythm. Roses are red, violets are blue, something that rhymes with that, and something else too. Hey, our bars. But um, that's what we know of with poetry, rhyme and rhythm. But Hebrew poetry, it's, it's more about free verse. It takes a central thought like, the Lord is my shepherd, or the Lord is my light, and salvation. It takes a central idea, and then from that foundational basis of that truth, it builds upon it. That's why I love reading the Psalms, because you don't just get to look at one idea and then brush past it to the next. You read four or five more verses with, rep with repetitive ideas that are really drilling this concept into your heart and your life. And that's what we have here in Psalm 23. This chapter built on this foundational declaration that the Lord was David's shepherd. But as we know, it's so much more than that. When the Lord is your shepherd, it's not just that you have a foundation for a poem. You have a foundation for life. When we look at the life of David, we see that everything that he's able to describe here is a life that's built on his relationship with God. That's a good question for us to ask ourselves this morning. The question is, what is your foundation? It's a great place to go back to. When you're looking at your life and you're not really happy with what's being built, when you're not really sure why things are the way you are, you're discontented with how you feel and your circumstances, it's always good to go back to the foundation. Well, what are you building your life on? Another way to say it is if you don't like the fruit, then you need to go back and examine the root. What is your foundation? What are you building your life on? On. You see, this psalm is the description of the good life, of a, what Jesus called abundant life, life without lack, life without fear, life under God's shepherding care, but it's all, again, contingent on one's ability to say, the Lord is my shepherd. question would be, is that your foundation? When you get down to the bottom of who you are and the bottom of what you're building your life upon, your career, your relationships, your purpose, your goal, is it built on this central place of Jesus? 1 Corinthians 3 says it this way, that no foundation can anyone lay than that which is already laid, which is Jesus. There's really no other foundation. In fact, Jesus said it this way. He said, you got two options. You got the rock or you have the sand. You're either building your life on something that's going to last for eternity, that's going to give you purpose here to infinity and beyond, 
said Buzz Lightyear, the great theologian. Or you're building your life on shifting sand that is contingent upon its circumstances. It's been said that all that's here will soon be passed. It's only what's done for Christ that will last. What is your foundation? David understood the value of a good foundation. That's why he makes this great declaration. This is the foundation. Now, we want to look at this declaration this morning. And again, we want to look at it through the the lens and the eyes of David, who was a shepherd himself. Um, For us, we might brush right past it, but David was a shepherd. So there there was so much more meaning to this. In fact, for, for my study time and even this whole series, I've been reading with each verse a book that goes great along with Psalm 23. Many of you have probably read it before, and it's the book A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 by an author named Philip Culler. I would highly recommend it, but I'm not going to because I don't want you to see where I'm getting all my sermon content from. (laughs) So I read it for you, okay? Um, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 is written by a pastor who lived in in Eastern, who spent most of his life in Eastern Africa, and he was a shepherd by trade. And even as we go through this psalm, we're going to be looking at uh, more specifically, I mean, we might just read this as, as some basic life stuff, but when you look at this chapter from the, the eyes of a shepherd, from the eyes of David or this guy, Philip Keller, it brings a whole new light to it. But let's just start today again with this foundational phrase. Uh, my heart and hope is that we're all able to say this, but let's understand what we mean today, what David meant when he made this declaration that the Lord was his shepherd. If you're taking notes, the first thing that we see about this declaration is that it is a declaration of humble dependence, of humble dependence. We want to emphasize a different word each time. The first thing we see David is is talking about is this idea that the Lord is his shepherd. Let's emphasize that word, shepherd, embolden that. By David saying this, he was making a declaration of humble dependence. By saying the Lord is my shepherd, David is also simultaneously humbly saying, I am his sheep. I am his sheep, which is not the most popular, formidable adversary out there in the wild. You don't see a lot of Bear Grylls episodes where it's Bear Grylls versus sheep, you know? Man versus sheep. It's not really out there. Um, But this is the common description that the Bible gives for us to understand ourselves. Uh, We see God, even in Genesis 49, identifying himself as the shepherd of Israel. And you're going, that's so nice of him. We're cute little sheep to God. Maybe, maybe, um, but there's so much more to that statement. Uh, If you understand sheep, you know that they are so much more than just cute little Mary had a little lamb creatures. Um, If you were to break down a central definition about sheep and why we are associated with sheep in the Bible, why David calls himself a sheep, um, you understand this about sheep, that sheep are incapable of independence. This is kind of like the autobiography of sheep. They are incapable of independence. There's something about sheep that leads them to be entirely dependent on a shepherd. David knows this, right? When he's saying this, he goes, the Lord is my shepherd, a.k.a. I am incapable of doing this life on my own. David knew sheep. He knew a few facts about sheep. He knew first that sheep, well, they're not the sharpest tool in the shed, brightest star in the sky, Fastest feet on the track. They're not, they're not the best. They're not the, they're, not, they're not the top of the class. Sheep are quite, you could say, witless. They're rather dumb. 
they need a shepherd because they lack smarts. There's a real sense in which without a shepherd, they would do some stupid things. Anybody ever done some stupid things before? Don't leave me alone up here. Okay. There's a famous chronicle of this story in Turkey. I'll read it to you. Hundreds of sheep in Turkey followed their leader off a cliff, plunging to their death this week while the other while shepherds looked on in dismay. 400 sheep fell 15 meters to their deaths in a ravine in Van province near Iran. But they, this is not funny. Um, hmm. um, those 500 that fell, they broke the fall of the other 1,100 animals who survived. So a little like sheep, you know, isn't your mattress, they have sheep on it? That's probably where they got that from. Shepherds from nearby village neglected, neglected the flock while they were eating breakfast, leaving the sheep to roam free. And what happened one by one, there's just one sheep that just, it's always that one that's just kind of like, what's over there? Oh, a ravine. I'm going to jump off it. And so the sheep goes off the ravine, and then you have 1,600 other sheep that follow this one sheep over the ravine, and many lives were spared (laughs) because of the bodies of the fluffy sheep. That's created a nice little cushion for um, that GoPro awesome event. Okay. Um, this event, it cost local farmers $74,000. Not so smart. Sheep are not just rather witless, they're also rather wayward. David knew this about sheep. Um, they're known and they're prone to wander, to stray. And not only do they get lost, but the worst part about sheep is they have a lack of ability to find their way home, unlike your pet, my dog, Cooper, who finds himself in somebody's yard once a week. Uh, a lot of times what happens is we don't realize he's out till like we're walking out the front door and he's sitting there. We're like, hey, Coop, how was your week? You know, like, he's, you know. Um, but dogs, that, you know, normal, it's, you know, it's kind of, a, it's instinctive for dogs. They, they're able to find their way home, but not sheep. Not only do they wander off, but they get lost with no ability to find their way home. And sheep are also, they're not just rather, um, dumb. They're not just rather directionless. They're also rather defenseless. Um, sheep have no claws, no venom. They have no real opportunity to repel any adversary or predator. There tends to be three common ways that you see a defense happen in the face of a predator. It's either fight, flight, or form. Now, let's walk through those with the sheep. If a sheep is facing a wolf or some predator, there's no hope of that sheep fighting. Like maybe he bites the, the wolf and gets it like even more annoyed as it's eating it. That's the, probably the best they can do. They have really nice teeth, actually. <laughs> they're, they're rather beautiful. Um, <laughs> but there's no defense. I mean, what's it, you know, a little gnaw on the knee there or something? They're not going to fight. Um, have you ever seen a sheep run? Have you ever seen those videos on YouTube? If a, a sheep were to, instead of fight, employ the method of flight, um, where there's these sheep, too, that when they get scared, they go, they go paralysis and they fall over. You ever seen that? Flight. In fact, what sheep do is they're unable to, like, get away. Um, they're not the fastest. Um, they're not the most coordinated. They're not going to make a beeline and escape, you know, up a ravine from the predator. So they flock together. And they basically, the way that they do it, that's why they're like humans too. They have that mob mentality. So when danger comes, they just kind of get together. And the way that you survive is you get to the middle and you become the last one eaten, you know? 
better than being the first one on the outside. No, Sharon, I was here first, you know. Uh, I just imagine that. So there's the flight option, which just turns into this just messy cotton ball pile of terrified sheep. The third option in the face of, of an adversary is form. You take on a form. You know, it's, it's your game face. It's your, it's your growl. Come on. You, can you imagine a sheep, like, taking on some... What would a sheep do? You know, like, they bat. There's not this real, like, I'm about to scare you away from eating me. Okay? It is the reason why yesterday, when you watched all your college football games, there was no mascot called the sheep. Now, you go, the rams. There's the rams. The Bible doesn't say that we are his rams. It says we are his lambs. And there's a reason why it's not a prominent mascot. If you're on a football team and you look at your calendar and you look in three weeks, we're facing the Boca Raton sheep. You're going to be like, we don't even need to practice. You got them. You got all the other teams, too, in South Florida, unfortunately. But um, you go through the list. It's not a common, it's not a formidable adversary. Now, we're laughing at all of these qualities. Spurgeon said this. He said, when I have heard people talk silly of sheep, I have often wondered with if the sheep could speak what they would say about men. The idea here is God says, like sheep, he's our shepherd. And he's declaring to us through this simple idea that we, listen, like sheep, we're desperately dependent on God. We, listen, you and I in, in life, we have no ability to make the best decisions in life without God. We do our best, but if it wasn't for God and his spirit and his word, we would all fall over the ravine. Without God, not only would we be wayward and strayed away, but without God, we would be lost with no ability to find home. Maybe you find yourself there today a bit. You're like, I'm lost, but I don't really know where home is. Without God, we're, guys, we're defenseless. The adversaries that we face, the Bible says, roam around like a, like a roaring lion seeking whom they may devour. We, in and of ourselves, we don't have the pleasure of independence. Like sheep, here's what we need to understand. Independence is an illusion. It's an illusion. Um, it's something that we kind of like pride ourselves in to be self-sustaining, and a lot of us right now, you're building an independent life, and there's forms of independence in our life that we grow into, but the reality of life is what Psalm 100 says. It says this. It says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So, so this is actually what humility looks like. Humility is understanding that you would not be if it were not for God. That you didn't make yourselves. Maybe you look at the success you've had in your business and you go, man, it's me. I did it. And God would say, you didn't make yourself. You didn't put that breath in your lungs. You didn't create this world for you to live in. You, 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 didn't, you didn't create the mind you have to make the decisions that you're making. It came from me. Not only that, but I'm the one that's sustaining you right now. Every breath that we take is an extension of the mercy of God. That he would allow us to just breathe and enjoy oxygen that he's created. To enjoy life. We are undeniably dependent on God. So much so that your dependence on God is not dependent on your ability to depend on him. 
Your dependence on God is a fact of the matter. Whether or not right now you're depending, I want to tell you, you're dependent on God. You should depend on God because you are dependent on God. Amen? But without him, we're, we're hopelessly dependent. There is no such thing as true independence. It's an illusion. You see, sheep need their shepherd and sheep need a flock. You can't do your life alone. You can try and get as far as you can, but the best place to be is to have this foundational declaration that David makes. It's to admit, God, I'm a sheep. God, I can't do my life alone. God, I recognize my independence as an illusion. I desperately need you and the people around me. It's a humble declaration of dependence. This is where God wants to lead us, I think, first and foundationally. Spurgeon also said this, that no man can say the Lord is my shepherd without first admitting that he is a sheep. This is where it has to start. So it starts with this humble declaration, but then this declaration moves to a declaration of personal experience. Write that down. So it's a declaration of humble dependence. I desperately need God. But it's also a declaration of personal experience. I want to embolden another word here in this verse. The Lord, I love this, is my shepherd. God is not just a shepherd, but David is able to say with personal experience that the Lord is my shepherd. Question for us today is, are you able to say that? Let's ask it this way. Is Jesus your shepherd? Is Jesus your shepherd? Not only am I a sheep, but I am his sheep. And this is where we would rejoice in what is called the gospel of Jesus Christ, which you could summarize as good news for lost sheep. Good news for lost sheep. Um, we see in the scriptures that we were made for God to be our guide. We were made, as we just said, even at creation. Our dependence on God is not a byproduct of sin and the fall. When God created Adam and Eve, when God created humanity, we were meant to live in harmonious relationship and dependence with him. It was a beautiful thing. It was a good thing. There was this mutual trust thing going on in the Garden of Eden where God said, I'm going to entrust you with the freedom and the rule and the power and the authority to care for my creation. But in response, I want you to trust me and not eat from that tree, not derive your knowledge of good and evil on your own, but depend on me, depend on a relationship with me, it was foundational. We were made for this relationship. But the scriptures tell us this. Isaiah 53 says that all we, like sheep, we've gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. This is our biggest problem. Do you know this? This is my biggest problem. This is your biggest problem. This is this world's biggest problem. The biggest problem is we say, like the people did in Jesus' time, that we don't want Jesus to rule over us. We want to be our own gods. I want to be my own shepherd. I want to be the captain of my own destiny, of my own ship. I, I want to be the, sheep, the shepherd to my own sheep. Isaiah says what we've done is we've gone astray. We've strayed from the shepherd. We've, we've moved away from that place of dependence on him, and we've all, through sin, have turned our backs on God. I like the way the message version says it. It says, we all like sheep. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've done our own thing. We've gone our own way. If you're looking for a definition of what sin is, maybe you thought, man, sin is like when you do these things but not these things. It's these bad things, but you got to do these good things. At the end of the day, sin is not a behavior issue. It's a heart issue. 
The fall of man is not that we fail to complete certain duties and certain laws. It's that in our hearts, we've turned from God and we've gone our own way. We want to do, here it is, we want to do our own thing. God, I want to do, I want my elbow room, God, okay? I like that you made this world. It's kind of nice, but let me do life on my own. And because there's mutual trust involved, God says, okay, do life on your own. Where do we end up? We end up lost. So much so that Jesus, when he describes the human condition in Matthew chapter 9, this is an incredible diagnosis that Jesus makes over society, over humanity. And the background of this is Jesus is going about in the cities and villages. He's teaching. He's preaching. He's healing people individually. But then verse 36 gives us this vision that Jesus has of the people kind of corporately. And it says that when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered. That's the symptom. Like sheep not having a shepherd. That's the sickness. Weary and scattered. Exhausted, burnt out, lost, and spread abroad chaotically astray because they don't have a shepherd. Your life changes not when you keep all the rules. Your life changes when you come back to Jesus as your shepherd, when you return to him. Now, the good news about this is, um, though this is our human condition, that's the problem at the end of the day with all of, all of us, um, this is the only thing, can I also say this? This is the only thing that's really going to bring the change that we all want in this world. It's not a bad thing to long for peace and justice and righteousness in this earth. Jesus came as a messenger of the kingdom and brought healing. He brought justice. He brought a sense of equality. But Jesus knew at the end of the day, the heart of every matter was the matter of the heart. And for real change to happen in our city, sheep need to return to their shepherd. Lost sheep need to come back to Jesus. That's where the hope is found. Now, here's the, we talk about the good news of the gospel, which you need bad news for good news to be good news. In order for it to be good, it's got to invade some bad spaces. It's got to come in on a hot Florida day. A cool breeze is nothing unless it's hot. So the hot heaviness, the South Florida humidity of our condition is that we are astray from Jesus. We've wandered away from Jesus. But the cool breeze and the good news is that though we are all sheep who have gone astray, the Bible teaches that Jesus, the Son of Man, he's come to seek and to save that which is lost. Something unique about Jesus that was such a contrast to the religious leaders of their day, and their job was about how do we get men to God? How do we give these people some rules to clean their lives up, to, to clean up their resume and their acts so that they can come before a holy God, and here's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, not about what you do to get to God, but what God has done to get to you. What God has done through Christ to seek and to save that wayward sheep. Would you turn with me to Luke 15? I know you know the song, but I want you to see the passage. Luke chapter 15. In Luke 15, Jesus is talking about this exact reality, that he is the good shepherd who has come to seek and to save those weary and scattered sheep. And in Luke chapter 15, the Bible says in verse 1 that all the tax collectors 
and the sinners. These were the cultural outcasts. These were kind of like, you know, we have this today in our culture too. You know, we have the people that are on the top of the game, church-going people, religious people, moral people, upright citizens, and then we have our own cultural divides, and we go kind of these kinds of people, social outcasts, uh, kind of like the people that you pass by, you pass on, and you maybe wouldn't be as quick to share the gospel with. Um, And these are the kind of people that were, listen to this, drawn to Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Sinners and tax collectors drew near to him. Isn't it sad when the church repels people that Jesus magnetizes? Isn't it sad when the church pushes away people that are drawn to Jesus, but they're pushed away by Jesus, uh, from Jesus because of people representing Jesus? Who look a lot more maybe like these next people. The Pharisees and the scribes complain saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. A lot of times we look at that and we're like, yeah, okay, so that's what we got to do. We got we to get with sinners. Got to have more uh, sinner dinners, you know. Got to get some sinner dinners in my life and, and get to know some people. And, you know, I, I have a meal and it's kind of bait and switch. I'll buy the food. You sit down and get my gospel presentation. And then if you don't receive it, that's the last dinner, okay. But the nature of what, what actually the, the gospel of, of Luke, which the gospel of Luke chronicles Jesus sitting down and eating with sinners more than any other uh, gospel. And it's just Jesus with people. By the way, he's with people even after they don't clean up their act. He's with sinners after they're still sinners. After they don't change and conform to what would be a better life for them, he's still eating with them. He's not going, well, I tried, I tried. But there's just no hope for you. My one meeting didn't do it, you know? We see that he's with these people, and the Pharisees, they're looking on, they're going, wow, how could he? How could he spend that kind of time with those kinds of people? And then Jesus tells this incredible parable. He says, what man of you? Having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, if he's got a hundred, he loses one, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. I love that, until he finds it. In other words, if God is seeking to find your life, he's going to find it. He runs faster than you. That's the idea. He's always able to catch up to us when we're running. Look at verse 5. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me! For I have found my sheep which was lost. I say, to you that, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, this is huge, than over 99 just persons who don't need repentance, a.k.a. don't think they need repentance. Jesus is talking about what heaven really rejoices over. And it's not the 99 churchgoers that have their small groups and talk about how holy they are. Jesus is oftentimes in a crowd like this Right now, he's, his eyes are on maybe the one person in this room that feels like they wouldn't be. You feel like, man, I'm not like these people. I don't come to church. It's my first time at church. I haven't been in church in forever. I'm not really. You're the person Jesus looks at. He's not so much, he cares about his flock. The idea here is not that he just neglected, neglect, uh, neglected his sheep, the 99, but they're together. They're flocking together. He's after the one lost sheep. His eyes are on you. He cares for you. So we, we even say, that, say it this way in our mission statement as a church that you know, our vision is to see Jesus at the center of all things. That's what we see in heaven. We see Jesus right there at the center of all things. We believe that when Jesus is at the center, all of life perfectly flows from that place. But we say this, that our vision is to see Jesus at the center one life at a time. This church was planted for one life. That's how we look at it. We believe, that, we, we believe it's, it's entirely possible in light of a, a verse like this that God would send Solus Church to be planted in South Florida to reach one person. 
Now, we don't think about God that, that way, right? Because God is this big God. He's got all his children in the big pool. What Jesus is talking about here is a personal God. A personal God that doesn't just see you as another person, another saved person in his pool of humanity, but he sees you as someone that he loves and he's seeking to find. He knows your name. He loves you. And that's, that's what Jesus is saying. This is the nature of the kingdom. This is what we have all experienced. Jesus has found us, the unrighteous, the sinners, the tax collectors, those that didn't have their act together. There's not one person in this room today that can tell you that they have a relationship with God because they cleaned their act up. If they did say that to you, you can immediately look at them and say, you need some more cleaning. You do. You're messier than all of us because you think you're clean. You're like a Pharisee. But Jesus is the good shepherd who leads us not to be so concerned with our self-righteousness, but to be concerned with lostness. The church should be concerned with lostness, with lo the things that God cares about, not our holy huddles, not our how do, we, how do we, you know, listen, we're on a path of sanctification together, but we don't do so neglecting the one lost sheep that Jesus has pursued, and it's every last one of us. If you are right with God today, it's not because you found God, it's because God found you. He chased you down, he chased me down, and he's won your life over. He's left the 99 for you. Some have called it reckless love, right? How has he done this? I love this good news. Um, Acts chapter 20 is speaking to elders in the church and, and pastors, um, and it says this, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. This is what the church is called, the flock, the fold, the sheepfold of God, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To, look at this, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's the nature of us being found by Jesus. The extent to which Jesus went to find lost sheep was that he purchased our lives with his very blood. He died on a cross and he shed his blood to purchase us. And that's the nature of shepherding. Um, to actually be able to say the Lord is my shepherd, what David was referring to there is David understood that as a shepherd, he owned his sheep. Every sheep is owned and paid for by a shepherd. And so too, you and I, those of us who are right with God or desire to be right with God, it comes through the price of the Son of God who is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep so that you who were lost could be found. Amen? That's good news. That's what God calls us to. And, and I love this verse. You know, Jesus is talking about this, and this is kind of his common mantra when he was on earth, saying that he's been sent to the lost sheep, right? You know how he says that a lot? And he says specifically he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. These are the people of God. God in the Old Testament said, I'm, the, I'm Israel's shepherd. They are my people, the sheep of my pasture, but they've all strayed away, Isaiah says. They've all wandered off. And so Jesus came to reach the sheep. But even the Jews in that time, they only saw themselves as the sheep, right? Unlike the Gentiles. All my Gentiles say, hey, where you at? All right? Unlike us, who were, were not a part of that promise, who were not a part of that lineage. And Jesus, I love this scripture. This is a, this is a prophetic promise that Jesus makes about soulless church. Did you know that? you know we're in the Bible? Check us out. John 10, 16, Jesus says this, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, a.k.a. Israel, them also I must bring. I love that. I have them even before I've brought them in. He had you before he brought you. That's good news. And they will hear my voice, and they will be one flock and one shepherd. This is the vision of the church of Jesus. This is the vision of heaven. We're going to see this in heaven. One 
One flock, despite our little differences, you worship like this, I worship like this, you burn calories, I chill and meditate. You know, we got our differences, you know, our cultural differences, our minor doctrinal differences. In heaven, guess what? It's one flock and one shepherd. The flock is made up of all who have put their faith and trust in Jesus to be able to say, the Lord is my shepherd. Thirdly, write this down. This is also, the Lord is my shepherd. This is also a declaration of absolute assurance. This is huge. It's personal experience. The Lord is my shepherd. But some of us today, we need to just hear this, that the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is your shepherd. It's absolute. It's for sure. It's a declaration of absolute assurance. So I asked the question earlier, right? I said this. Is Jesus your shepherd? Have you been found by him? Have you done what Peter says? Have you returned to the shepherd of your soul? My second question would be this. Are you sure? Is Jesus your your shepherd? Are you sure? Are you assured? Are you absolutely assured that Jesus is your shepherd? You know, the Bible calls us, I don't know if you know this, but the Bible calls us to be sure. It's in 2 Peter chapter 1 where the Bible says this. It says that we should be diligent to make our call and election sure. We should be sure. There, there tends to be, I think, two dangers that um, people today, when it comes to faith in Jesus, can fall into when it comes to assurance. Let's talk about this. Um, one I would call an area, a very dangerous, sketchy place called false assurance. The other would be called, I would say, faulty assurance. Let's look at these each. False assurance is assuming you're saved when you're not. False assurance. Well, yeah, why why are you asking me, Andrew, if I'm a sheep? I'm in the fold right now, right? I'm at church. Well, Andrew, why are you asking me if I'm a sheep? I was raised in a Christian home. God bless America. I celebrate Christmas. I know the Bible. I know verses like Satan did in Matthew 4. Um, you know, what about all that I know, Andrew? What about all that I've done? I've been on missions trips. I've done this, I've done that, I've done this, and I've done that. And um, Jesus said that many, many, many people are going to come to me on that last day, and they're going to say, Lord, Lord. They know the words. They know the script. But his response is going to be, depart from me. I never knew you. C.S. Lewis says it's at that point that man is banished from the presence of him who is everywhere, is removed from the mind of him who knows all. It is entirely possible. According to scripture, it's actually probable to wrongfully assume that you belong to God when you don't. And I don't tell that to you from a place of anger. I tell you that from a place of love. I hope and pray that you are sure, that you're sure. In fact, Jesus says that in the last day, just like a shepherd divides sheep and goats, that Jesus in the last day, Matthew 23, says that Jesus is going to divide up the nations, his sheep and his goats. Sadly, many of those goats, according to Scripture, will have been sheep in or wolves in sheep's clothing. False assurance, false assurance. Now, that's one danger, but I want to remind us of another danger. 
Okay? False assurance is when you're assuming you're saved when you're not, maybe because you've placed your faith in what you do, what you know, or who you are, anything other than Jesus. But there's also a sense of faulty assurance, which is I want to kind of I want to put the air back in the room here with this one, okay? Faulty assurance is also, many of us, we doubt that we're saved when we are. We doubt that we're saved when we are. Um, the scriptures tell us this. I, I love this promise in 1 John 5.13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may, what? Know that you have eternal life. Key word there is know. Not hope with wishful thinking. Not, you know, place your bet on it. Jesus did not die on the cross for you to be unsure of your salvation. Jesus died so that you may know that you have eternal life. That you wouldn't be faulty, assured in a faulty way, in a broken way, in an unsure way, but that you would know that you know that you know that you have eternal life. Okay, Andrew, is this the point now where you do the altar call so I can be sure that I know that I know that I know? And that's still this thinking that says I got to recommit my way into the kingdom of God. No, that's not how you know. I would recommend a book to you. Um, it's maybe a bit controversial, but that's always fun. Um, it's J.D. Greer's book, and it's entitled Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. Now, don't get me wrong. He's not saying don't ever do that. In fact, uh, you should do that. If you haven't done that, you should invite Jesus into your heart and in your life for you to be saved. But you shouldn't do that for the rest of your life, hoping that you ask him enough to eventually save you. Maybe, maybe is, it, is it 13 altar calls that magically saves me? The 12th one, I really felt that one. Maybe the 13th one will really do it. Or the seven, right? Number of completion. So seven altar calls. I'm at five. I'm almost a Christian. Okay. No. No. In fact, go to John chapter 10. I want you to see this. In John chapter 10, Jesus, um, he prescribes, you could say, the same solution to both of these problems. So... Um, potentially you're in here today and you're falsely assured, okay? Uh, maybe you think you're saved, but you're not. You think that God is your shepherd, but he's not. Um, maybe that's your situation, to be false assured. Uh, or maybe your situation is that you're, it's a faulty assurance. You doubt that you're saved when you are. Regardless, Jesus prescribes the same solution here in John chapter 10, which we will be in this chapter a lot. It correlates beautifully with Psalm 23. And in John chapter 10, Jesus, what he does here is, I want to say this, Jesus, he describes the marks of someone who belongs to him, okay? How you could know. How do I know that I'm saved? Well, Jesus tells us in John 10, um, Jesus in this chapter is describing himself as the good shepherd, and he's using an analogy in that culture of uh, these communal sheep pens, that you as a shepherd would bring all of your sheep to. It's kind of like a children's ministry check-in, right? You bring your flock on Sunday morning, get in there, okay? Can't wait to take a little break for an hour, okay? And then you go into church, all right, you check them in, and that's just like our children's ministry. There were these communal sheep pens with all these sheep, and if a shepherd came to town with his sheep, um, he would, you know, check them in. Maybe, he would, maybe it was first class, he'd get like his own private VIP sheep pen. I don't know, I haven't been there, but um, they would get this, this big communal sheep pen, and um, when the shepherd was time to check his kids out, he didn't have like a little card. Hey, I'm here for you. Hey, Johnny. It was a shepherd would come in and he would call his sheep. He would call his sheep from out of the flock. That was the analogy that Jesus is giving. And he's saying this in the face of many Pharisees 
And it tells us this in John chapter 10. Notice this. It says that in verse uh, 23, check this out. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch, John 10, 23. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Then Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. See that there? This is how we know that we're his sheep. He's saying, these people, they're not my sheep. He said in verse 27, here are the marks. My sheep, how do I know if I belong to Jesus? Well, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Jesus gives some marks of belonging to him. And he gives two specific marks. In fact, in that culture, um, a shepherd would mark his sheep, often with a knife, make a little cut on their ear or on their foot. And what's interesting here is Jesus is saying that that's our mark as well. One is on our ear. Here's how you know you belong to me. Have you heard my voice? And as you heard my voice, is there a mark on your foot? Have you come to me to receive eternal life? Aren't you so glad how simple it is? Here is how you know you belong to Jesus. Have you heard him call you out of your sin to himself? And have you responded by coming to him and following him to receive the free gift of eternal life? You belong to him. And no one shall snatch you out of his hand. Right now, you're a little like, that's way easier than I thought it was going to be. Where's all the work? Jesus did all the work. That's what he did on the cross. So that you wouldn't have to be false assured and and place your trust in the fact that, man, I'm going to follow my way to God. I'm going to be good enough. I have it together. You know, I look enough like the sheep to be one. No. No. God knows you. God sees you. And he calls you out of a false assurance to put your true faith and trust in Jesus, to be really forgiven, to turn from your sin and to trust in him as Savior, to neglect your parents' faith and to embrace your own faith. It's been said God doesn't have grandchildren. He doesn't. He's got children who have placed their faith and trust in him. He has sheep who are marked by him by the way that they have heard his voice, that call to salvation, and they have followed him. They have followed him. Um, This is the good news of the gospel, that it's even that easy. And then lastly, write this last one down. We see that this declaration, it's a declaration of complete confidence. Complete confidence. It's a declaration of absolute assurance that Jesus is my shepherd because I've come to him. But it's also a declaration, I love this, of complete confidence. Uh, As we go back to Psalm 23, here's what David says. We look at it again and we see the Lord is my shepherd. We emphasize that, those first two words, what David is saying, the Lord is my shepherd. David is declaring his confidence in God's capability to be his shepherd. I've come to Jesus because I know that I make a lousy God. I make a lousy shepherd, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. So I've got to come to you I declare my confidence that you're my shepherd. You know, for David, that this was really a declaration of confidence because, you know, this was his job. You know, when you have a job and you are, you know, you have a certain field, if you're ever in the position where you transfer out of that job and somebody else comes into your role, anybody ever been in that position before? Just curious. You transferred out of a job, somebody else came into your role, one person, two people. Oh, there we go. Hey, guys, good to see you. All right, all right. Now, if you've been in that position before, 
usually you have a high standard for that job, right? How that job is done because of the way in which you've done it. And the same is true for David. There's a high standard I'm sure that David has, but it, listen, he doesn't hesitate to say, God is my shepherd. He could do it way better than I ever have. The Lord is my shepherd. Let's understand too, if you read the book, it's a great book, I would recommend it to you. It's called God Has a Name by John Mark Comer. That's a joke because we read it together this summer. Two of us, I guess. Um, but <laughs> I came to book club. You gotta read the book. All right. Um, um, in God Has a Name, John Mark Comer reminds us that this word, the Lord, that we read here in Psalm 23 is, in the original language, it's the name of God that God revealed to Moses in the third person, we say Yahweh. Yahweh is my shepherd, is what David is saying. In other words, um, David is, is fully aware of, of who he's giving his confidence to. He's aware of who God is as Yahweh, which means whatever God is, he will always be. Unchanging God, immutable, forever the same, yesterday, today, and forever. He reveals himself to Moses as merciful and gracious. He shows his character to Moses. And, and this is the the God that David says, he is my shepherd because he is fully capable and fully worthy to run my life. And what some of us need to do today is we need to relinquish that control to Jesus again. We've been our own shepherds. We've been doing relationships our own way. We've been doing life our own way. We've been doing our marriages our own way. We've been doing our business our own way. You fill in the blank. What have you been doing your own way? And how do you need to come back to Jesus and put your confidence in him as your shepherd? and say, you are way more capable at running this life than I am, God. So I give you back your position. Take control. Be my shepherd. Hebrews eleven six says it this way. It says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God, look at this, must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, every time I've, I've studied this verse, I usually focus on the last part of this verse, right? Like, come on, who wouldn't? God rewards those who seek him. Right now you're like, my life's empty. See God, it'll be full. Trust me, right? He rewards those who seek him. But I think the clencher here in this verse as it comes to faith and confidence is this idea of who God is. When we come to God, and who is God speaking to here? He's speaking to the Hebrews, the ones who know that God is who he is. And it's okay for you to know in your head that God is who he is, but are you living your life in such a way that you believe that he is? that you're trusting in his character. We can ask it this way. Are you confident in the character and capability of your shepherd? The Lord is my shepherd. As I invite the worship team to come up, I want to leave you with this verse, and it's 1 Peter 2, 25. It says this. It says, For we, for you, were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is our life now, guys, and it's, guess what? It's great news. It's great news that Jesus seeks the lost. It's great news that though I wander, Jesus is a lot better at finding me than, my, than I am at getting lost. And it's with that good news that, listen, you and I, guys, we could say like David. We could say the Lord is my shepherd. My hope and prayer is that you're able to say that. Let's worship together as we declare this to our God, as we look to him for who he is and declare together that he is our shepherd.